Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to Caroline Crampton and Barbara Speed about Labour's pink bus and whether we should talk about women's issues in politics anymore. Then Ashley Cowburn and George Eaton join me to talk about the smaller parties. What do they want in the event of coalition negotiations? And finally, Ian Steadman and I discuss whether our tech is spying on us and whether we should be bothered about it. It's a special pink version of the politics section of this podcast this week, as I'm joined by Barbara Speed and Caroline Crampton to discuss Labour Women's Launch. Sorry, George. Um, I'll start with you, uh, Caroline. There's been a lot of comment after the launch about the pink bus. Personally, were you shaken to your very core by the patronisation evidenced by the pink bus? I was not, I have to say, I'm not someone that uh, forms my worldview on the colour of buses. Um, I was irritated by what I feel it demonstrates about Labour's inability to run a proper media strategy when launching something, but the actual pinkness of the bus did offend me, no. Barbara, outraged. How outraged are you on a scale of one to, like, really outraged? Around three. (laughs) Um, I can see that it could be patronising, and if their entire strategy was to drive something pink and hope that women will then vote for them, then that would be a terrible strategy. But it's a shame that the bus has kind of overshadowed the entire point of the campaign, um, which is actually talking to women and hearing about their priorities. Well, I've had a lot of pent-up rage about this for about, I don't know, ever since I went. I actually went to the launch. So the launch symbolically was held at Brewers Green, which is Labour's headquarters. It's the first time they've had a proper women's campaign. So Harriet Harman sat there and said, I'm 64 and we could never have done this before. And I kind of thought... A, I thought, wow, you look really good for 64. That's really cheering to me. <laughs> yeah, but that, you know. And, um, and secondly, that is kind of true, is that they've now got to the stage in the Labour Party where they have such, they have quite, I can't remember the exact number, I think it's 14 women who attend Cabinet, but they have, you know, there is a sort of safety in numbers element, right? You don't have to be the only woman in the room kind of going, can we talk about women's issues? And everybody's sort of going, no, I want to talk about defence, about firing guns in the air, because that's politics. Um, and I, and I, so that actually made me feel quite happy. Then what made me feel quite sad was the day after where we had to get stuck into this, like, pink bus, yay or nay. Hate the pink bus, love it, pink bus. Because I thought the pink bus was really stupid. There was a moment where they handed out the, pi- the pictures of the pink bus and everyone went, because <clears throat> everybody knew instantly that that was going to be the story. Never mind the fact that, you know, they have actually used that hideous pink before. Um, never mind the fact that, Actually, as they said, I I felt really bad because at the end of the briefing, I reached into my bag to find my wallet 
which is exactly the same colour pink as the bus. And the reason I picked that wallet was because it was that one or like a black one. And I knew I would never find that in my bag. And I thought, Harriet Harman is right. That pink is very conspicuous. Mm. Yeah. And there's also, I think it's a, a point you made to me the other day, that um, there aren't actually that many other colours left in politics. You know, blue's taken, yellow's taken, green's taken, purple's, purple's taken. taken. She said they tried a darker red, but it looked like a Pret-a-Manger van. You know, there's there aren't actually that I'm struggling uh, orange, but the Lib Dems have kind of got orange, haven't they? They had the orange, orange book. Booker, yeah. So I'm kind of struggling to think grey, black, but who's going to see that? You know, you can't have a grey bus. You can't have a grey bus. You can't have a black bus because then you look. It looks like a hearse. Like a hearse. <laughs> you can't and have a white a... bus because everyone's going to spend the whole time going <laughs> white van, white van. <laughs> <laughs> so so it is. Mm, yeah. Um, apart from you know a Labour red bus with women written on it really large, I don't really know what else they could have done. But I think this is kind of about the the big problem that we have with talking about women's issues generally right because it's seen that that is in itself inherently patronizing and I think a lot of people want to make the case that by singling out women as a group given that there is a huge diversity within that group it is incredibly patronizing so Barbara do you mind when politicians talk about women's issues? Um, I can definitely see that in an ideal world we wouldn't have to Um, but I think we don't live there now so I mean if you I mean Yesterday, there was a lot of talk about how, say, benefits or immigration aren't women's issues, and it's really silly to imagine that they are. But in fact, I mean, a lot of the policies under the last government have influenced women in a negative way far more than men. So they have become women's issues. And if Labour want to reverse that damage, then they do need to look at it from the perspective of women. Yeah, I mean, that's so look at something like Jarl's Wood. So there are all the problems with general detention and immigration anyway. Mm. Plus, in Yarlswood, which is an almost all-female centre, you have the problems of people being pregnant, people having separated from small children. Um, What happens when you have a a mostly male guard force having to watch over people who are, for example, on suicide watch, having to watch women shower and sleep and all all the potential problems that you then have to safeguard against there. And the same thing with, with benefits. You know, the Fawcett Society has done a lot of research about the fact that Women, as often ending up as the primary carers, are more affected by benefit sanctions, for example. We know that um, austerity, because more women work in the public sector, they're affected by it. And I just sort of think, at this point, I, everything everything and nothing is a women's issue, but I d- it doesn't it doesn't patronise me. I don't know if I would have felt like that five years ago. I don't know how you feel, Caroline. I, I agree. I agree both there, that things have moved in a direction that means this is the way we have to talk about it, it seems, that we haven't we haven't got this stuff as part of the main political conversation so it has to be a separate area or we wouldn't be talking about it at all and that's that's where my kind of anger about this comes from all the people saying well you know it's patronizing it's it's segregating women as sort of lesser and important say well no it isn't because I'd much rather have be part of that sort of separate conversation led by Harriet Harman someone who I think is great uh than not have it at all now you say you think Harriet Harman is great that is not Harman is great but that is not a, a, a popular opinion or a, a received wisdom within Westminster, is it? No, but I think at least 70% of that comes from the fact that people like to make puns on her name. Um, call her Harriet Harperson or... Or the comment we had yesterday on the website, which is, the clue is in the name, harm man. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I think a lot of that comes from tabloids enjoying... You know, back when she was one of the few women at the top of the Labour Party, um, I think papers, broadcasters, satirists, it was really easy to paint and draw her as the kind of spiky harridan who wanted to ruin everybody's fun. Well, that was my main sense, is actually how much politics has changed, even during the time that I can remember it. We had all the brouhaha about the No More Page 3 campaign and whether or not The Sun had really scrapped that. But 
the way that the sun handle it was so different to the way that they used to be about about page three, which was basically like mm, sod off, ugly feminists. What you just know because no one wants to see your tits, and they can't do that anymore. Like the language around it is has definitely moved on. They would not do now a mock up of a female politician like they did of, of Claire Short saying fat, jealous Claire hates page three. It just it just uh, even you know, even men might be able to see <laughs> the problem with that, right? And um. And to that extent, I think it's it's it it is interesting. So there was a question, for example, about um about prostitution that was put to Harriet Harman, and she said, "Well, the Labour Party isn't making any announcements on that." And actually, that's Yvette Cooper's deal. And I thought, "Wow, they've got like they've got women to spare." There's you know, there's a uh, yeah, woman well, in charge of the home but office. This is what kind of what Barbara is saying that um once you've got women and and people sympathetic to women in positions like Home Secretary, traditionally a kind of male preserve, um, looking after things like enforcement and so on, then they are able to meld so-called women's issues with just politics. But until that happens across the board, then you do still need to have separate conversations about them. Uh, uh, finally, do you can you imagine a situation in which either of the other parties specifically goes, or either of the other two main parties, I would say, goes after the women's vote, and how would they do it, Barbara? Um, I think they probably should. This has probably scared them off, which is a bad thing. Um, but I mean, for example, the Lib Dems need to, I think, publicly show that they're improving their own policies, even within their own party, on dealing with harassment claims or whatever. Um, well, my um, my favourite quote of yesterday was that, yeah, so Labour's have this the bus, which is 16-seater, and someone pointed out that you could fit every female Lib Dem MP that there has ever been in the bus yeah. um, and they've got seven women at the moment out of a parliamentary party of I think 56 yeah. and uh, those people are all actually in, in, in marginal seats and given that we're looking at huge swings against the Lib Dems they could end up being an all white all male mm. parliamentary party which is but, but then this is coming back to the problem it's one of the reasons that Labour can do this is that they have got a women's minister mm. they've got so there was Lucy Powell who's their deputy election coordinator there Harriet Harman who's deputy leader of the party and they've got lots of other women that they can shove out in front for the Lib Dems, they haven't actually managed to promote a, a woman to foot a full cabinet post over the time that, that they've been there. So one of the reasons, fundamentally, I guess they can't do a women's campaign is that there would be a lot of work for like, a couple of women. Lynn Featherstone would have a lot of extra work, basically. Yeah. But what about, can you imagine a, a, what a Tory women's campaign would well, look like? Well, I have They a, do have women to win. I have a bit there. of an inkling in the sense that I've been to various women to win events, which is their kind of... Um, their scheme for promoting female candidates and so on, because they're 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 ideologically opposed to having all women shortlists, but they they want women to just be selected on merit. So they have well, these. Cameron, what waivers on this? Because mm. I wrote a piece in the FT saying that if the Tories are really serious about this, they they need to actually embrace all women shortlists. It's the only thing. It's a shock, and it's in some ways really unfair, and it is open to you know some shenanigans, but it does change something. It should be a temporary mm. measure. I actually had a great letter back by the guy who hates women wearing trousers, um, <laughs> who wrote me a personal letter about how I was extremely wrong. And I thought, sitting there in my trousers, I thought, ha ha, one in the eye for you, sir. <laughs> and, um, but, um, so David Cameron, the great quote from him is that too often selectors are looking for the perfect son-in-law, mm. not the perfect candidate. So Tory selectors have an average age, I think, about 67, um, which I think really affects stuff. But anyway, sorry, you were talking about yeah, women to win. Yeah, I was just saying, so, so rather than, they haven't gone as far as to have all women shortlist, but they do have this um, women to win sort of networking thing um, where various of their female MPs um, meet with potential candidates and try and combat that kind of son-in-law problem although I'm not sure why the onus is on the candidates rather than the selectors but anyway um and you know it's a it's a nice event there are lots of women who want to be involved in right-wing politics there and but that's as far as it goes for them I can't see them moving that conversation 
once once those women get into parliament then they're just MPs then they are supposedly gender neutral I can't see the Tories taking it further to say you you are different you have something else to contribute I think there's such a stigma in because of of, of conservative kind of more mm. individualistic thinking that about the idea that you would get in any way a special you know, special pass. Whereas, obviously, we know that you know going to Eton is just you know that's that's total meritocracy. That gives yeah. you no no advantages or privileges in life. But there is that total anathema of being seen to have had special treatment. And I can see that there is an argument that if you come through an all women's shortlist, then people will be slightly snotty about that. Which again is one of the reasons if you have lots of them, then there's quite a lot of you. So you know you can all kind of club together. Really. And also, we've arrived at a point where I mean, Labour are doing all women shortlists for a while now, and everyone can demonstrably see the effect it's had and hopefully see the positive effect it's had on Parliament as a whole, not just on the Labour Party. So I think, I feel like that myth is kind of dying. There was a great quote from um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon when she did her first balanced cabinet, because it's uh, up in um, Scotland, Her at the SNP has got 50-50, and she said, people wrote to me asking if all the women were there on merit. No one asked if all the men were. <laughs> and I have to say that I sometimes do look at some of the men in the cabinet and I think, Hmm, not an enormously great advert for a totally neutral meritocratic process. Um, but anyway, enough of our misery. Um, <laughs> we'll have men back next week to talk about politics, we promise. Um, I'll say thank you very much to Barbara and Caroline. election of the small parties after such a tight election people will be looking for coalition partners i'm talking to george our political editor and ashley cowburn who is with us as a tony howard scholar about whether or not those small parties know what they want and how they're going to get it george first of all tell me you've done an interview with the leader of the dup so first of all um for those who who might not know who or what are the dup Mm, so the dup are the largest northern irish party in the house of commons uh they've got eight mps which makes them the fourth largest party in total and they are now the dominant unionist party uh the ulster unionists uh who historically were stronger in fact have no mps at the moment and so um the dup are attracting increasing attention from both the labor and the conservatives so before the 2010 election, they were discussed by the Tories as a possible partner if they just fell short of a majority. And uh, Ed Miliband recently visited Northern Ireland and did a tour of uh, Nigel Dodds's North Belfast constituency. So Labour, too, recognised that um, in a very close election, uh, where the DUP's eight MPs go in terms of uh, deals could be very significant. I think that's the thing that perhaps people don't realise is eight MPs actually begins to look quite electorally significant when you're looking at a situation where maybe you know Labour might get between 280 and 285 and Conservatives pretty much in that same bracket mm. more than UKIP really we, yes. we talk about how interesting <clears throat> UKIP is my feeling has always been that UKIP is very interesting up until 10pm on the 7th of May because they could take huge chunks out of, of other people's vote shares but they look unlikely to make enough breakthroughs that they will you know that would deliver them a significant number of MPs what do the DUP want? Mm. So in my interview, uh, Dodd sets out three main conditions. The first is greater protection for defence spending. So he'd like to see defence spending maintained at at least 2% of GDP. He'd like to see stronger border controls, uh, new restrictions on welfare benefits for EU migrants. 
But interestingly, he also calls for the abolition of the bedroom tax, saying it's caused undue That's quite the uh, coalition partner demand, isn't it? Yes. So he's positioning himself as equidistant between Labour and the Conservatives, says we can do business with either, we're we're happy to work with anyone. I asked him, is it true, as uh, Ken Clark said in 2010, you can always do a deal with an Ulster man? He basically said yes. I mean, we in Northern Ireland have uh, done deals uh, with people who were uh, trying to murder each other in the past. And um, you know, the, no one in Westminster should doubt our flexibility and capacity for negotiation. That's fascinating, because particularly when you mentioned defence set spending, because that's in stark contrast to the SNP, who have made enormous hay out of saying we will never do a deal with the Tories. Yes. We're not, no, they don't want to position themselves as a purely nationalist party equidistant. They are now firmly in the space of, of presenting themselves as a social democratic party. How on earth would it take this scenario? Labour need the votes of both the SNP and the DUP when the SNP's demand is scrap trident. Mm, it's a very good question. And it's why some in Westminster find it very hard to see how any government will be formed after the next election that, that can command the, the confidence of the House simply because there are these contradictory demands. That said, I mean, before the 2010 election, a lot of people couldn't see how the Tories and the Lib Dems would do a deal. They said yeah, they're completely different places on, on the EU. The Lib Dems have said that they don't want any immediate spending cuts. There's Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Fees, there's differences on tax. And of course, as we now know, lots of compromises were made. Mm. Um, and there's a political price to be paid for that. But in the end, politics is about um, you know, what's, what's necessary to govern and, and what's necessary to hold power. Um, Certainly, though, for, for Ed Miliband, I think he is going to to come under particular pressure on austerity because Nicola Sturgeon, of course, was in London this week, making it clear that the SNP's primary demand will be an end to, uh, to spending cuts. And given that a significant chunk of Miliband's backbenchers agree with that, that, I think, is, is, is one position that he'll struggle to maintain. And actually, you have a slightly different perspective. You've been writing a bit about the Greens this week. Yes. And um, I think they're in a fascinating position. They're in the position, perhaps, that UKIP were in a, a year or so ago, mm. or maybe slightly longer, of trying to turn a kind of very small, i not say fly-by-night, that sounds unnecessarily pejorative, but yeah. you know what I mean, a kind of slightly homespun operation into building that machine. So can you tell us what happened when you asked them about their policy on um, universal basic income? Um, so universal basic income was when they give £72 a week to every single person in the UK, regardless of um, how much they earn in a year. Um, and originally, the, this was a policy for the manifesto in 2015 to be implemented in the first term. But then Caroline Lucas in The Guardian, uh, no, sorry, not The Guardian, it was on BBC Radio 4 last week, said that it will not be in the manifesto as a policy to implement on May the 8th. Um, it wasn't really clear whether she meant it was still being a manifesto, but what was clear was that she was saying it won't be implemented for the next mm. general election, um, in the next term, sorry. And in the interim, there had been a, a, I think it's fair to say, disastrous interview with Natalie Bennett, who's now the yes. leader, and Andrew Neil on the Sunday politics, in which she came under quite under pressure over a lot of policies and how the sums on them would work. Yes, that was, um, some, some people have described that interview as a bit of a car crash, um, 
she seemed to think that she could get all the money from tax avoidance and um, was it efficiency savings? It's usually efficiency savings. Yeah, one of them was um, get, on one avoidance. of them was getting rid of the administration fees from job centres um, and getting rid of the means tested basis. But I think that was less than fifty million you saved from that. And the policy was about two hundred and forty million, so still a bit of a drop there. It's interesting though because I think that the Greens have recently hired—is this right—a second press officer yes. in the last couple of weeks, having had a part-time press officer. And they are, to some extent, now professionalising their operation in the same way that, that UKIP did by mm. hiring in um, Patrick O'Flynn from the Daily Express as, as chief of communications, who then became an MEP. Um, how hard do you think it is, actually? Because we talk a lot about the troubles that Labour and the Tories both have in terms of managing difficult personalities. In a smaller party, where you maybe have fewer person, big personalities, mm. but they're more used to getting their own way, do you think that's a harder thing to manage? Um, potentially, but um, it's right though. Um, I spoke to Amelia Womack, who's the dem- deputy leader of the Green Party the other day, and she was saying how they've actually hired another press officer in their national office called Matthew Butcher. Um, but I do think it's increasingly difficult to for them to um, manage these personalities. But one interesting thing she did say to me was categorically that there is no tension between Natalie Bennett and Caroline Lucas. Um, she said that the media are trying to whip up this sort of headline in the press about this situation. And she thinks it's something to do with two women joining, um, two women at the helm of the party. Well, I kind of, I, with respect to her, I'm sure I, I kind of I can see the point, and I'm sure that there is there is always the temptation to write cat fight when there's yep. two women. But equally well, the, the idea that you know there might be tensions between two people with very different visions with very different platforms is, I mean, we only have to look back to Brown and and, and Blair, yep. and there's an odd situation where Caroline Lucas is the is the figurehead, but Natalie Bennett is the leader. Um, at that situation, George, doesn't seem to have happened in, in UKIP so much. It is still Nigel Farage's band. There was talk of maybe it would happen with, with Douglas Carswell because he's a very strong, ideologically driven MP. Do you think, could you see that, foresee that in the future of UKIP? I think the ideological tensions will come to the surface at some point, and particularly if, if they have five or so MPs after the next election then they will need to have more of a defined collective position. Mm. I think at the moment, Carswell's sort of image is, is as a maverick, and so they can uh, be quite, play quite fast and loose with, with policy commitments. Um, but you know, with success, political parties do have to impose greater discipline and, and do need more unity. Well, we'll come, I'm sure we'll come back to this subject many times over the next couple of weeks, but for the moment, thank you very much, George and Ashley. Is your television spying on you? That's been the suggestion from privacy campaigners this week after it's discovered that Samsung Smart TV can send all your voice commands to a third-party server. I'm joined by Ian Stedman, our tech writer, to talk about it. Um, so first of all, explain to me uh, basically what the what the Samsung TV does actually. Yes. Um, Samsung's TVs, being like a lot of other manufacturers' TVs, uh, they have voice recognition software. They have a microphone built into them. Some of them um, also have video cameras, but we're, we're just talking about audio at the moment. And the idea is that, um, you know, we're all lazy and we all lose the TV remote. And sometimes it'd be nice to just be able to shout out TV change channel, TV volume up, TV volume down. Um, but that uses voice recognition software. And what people seem not to realize is that uh, the th- the computer in a TV isn't very good. So when your TV hears you say channel up, it connects to the internet, it sends it to a server somewhere in- that Samsung owns, 
their computer works out what it is that you've said and then it sends it back and it mm-hmm. processes the command. Because the internet's so fast these days, it happens so quick, it seems instantaneous. Uh, but the thing that freaks people out about this is that um, buried in the terms and conditions is all this legalese about the fact that well, Samsung isn't the only company that does it. Samsung owns other companies or works with other companies to process that data. Like they work with a company in America, they're a Korean company, but they work with a company in America to actually do their voice recognition Mm. software. So everything that you say in front of your Samsung TV, your TV is sitting there listening, waiting for you to say something that triggers a command. So it's sending audio all the way to Samsung. It's sending audio to all these other companies. So everything you're saying in your living room is, is, is being recorded, which as a lot of people have pointed out, is from the first chapter of 1984. The telescreen sat in the corner and yeah. he was never sure what the, the, what the thought police were listening to. So I wrote about this for the Financial Times this week. My overriding instinct is that it's always very sinister and these stories come out and people go, oh, it's terrible. And then sales of Samsung TVs continue entirely yeah. unaffected. Um, so I compared the fact that Tor, for example, which is the internet um, operating system browser tool that allows you to, to browse the internet anonymously, has about 2 million active users. Meanwhile, in the last quarter of 2004, Apple sold 74 million iPhones. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty well known that any iPhone or any smartphone, you can turn that into a bug. If you're being hunted by the security services, do not carry your iPhone around with you, even mm. switched off, because you can hack the microphone so that it's always recording. Um, it's one of the reasons they've been banned from cabinet meetings. And when The Guardian were reporting on the Snowden leaks, they didn't take any electronic equipment um, into into the room where they were working on it. The problem is, again, as I, I say, people sort of don't care. But the, you cover this in your piece, yeah. really, the fact that Basically, a lot of our information is extraordinarily valuable and we have yeah. so little control over where it goes. Mm. Does that ever become worrying, really, it, in more than it, an abstract sense? It does. It, be, it becomes worrying when we experience the effects of that information becoming public. And that tends to happen in things like hacks. Um, we haven't had as many in this country as there happen in America, but America has seen some really massive hacks recently where... Um, the retailer Target, which is um, a large sort of Walmart-style sort of store with thousands of outlets, um, their computer system was hacked recently and leaked a whole bunch of card details and stuff. Um, and notoriously, Sony's emails were, were yep, ha- Sony's were hacked, emails were hacked, um, um, which led to well, actually led to people leaving the company. It was so, so yeah. embarrassing. And apparently, they're all supposed to be using fax now <laughs> um, because they just can't risk putting anything on a on a server that might not be secure. Yeah, um, I mean, anyone who's used a smart TV will know that they are like awfully designed things like the the internet the operating system is is really clunky and poorly designed the apps are updated very rarely it doesn't get security updates that often they don't really come with any kind of security beyond the firewall that's in your router they're extremely easy to get into um and it's the kind of uh, uh programs and apps like that that are also going into other things like people talk about smart fridges and all that kind of stuff and what's known as the internet of things where everything gets the internet in it and those same problems will happen where you have a bunch of things in your house and in your life that send data to people you have no control over who it sends to and you can't trust that those companies will look after that data securely um i think the kindle is a really interesting example of the trade-off that you make so i really like having my kindle it means you know i can go on holiday and i just take one thing and it's got loads and loads of books and articles on it but the problem is that 
as they happened when they updated the text of 1984, amusingly. Or was it Animal Farm? It was an Orwell book, anyway. Yeah. Um, that that you are, at the, you know, you don't really ever own anything. You're sort of more given a kind of license yeah. to be allowed to access stuff. And and that's more and more the model that you're moving to. Mm. Um, I was really surprised over Christmas when... I wanted to play games on my my new Xbox, and that had been the subject of a of a hack. And so many games demand online connectivity. At least, you know, the first time you mm. have to download things, you have to sort of check in so that they can check you haven't pirated something. And there is this fundamental shift away from just having tangible things that you own to having things that can kind of revoke well, you, you rent. You yeah, rent and them, you mentioned in your piece the fact that lots of people tried to start their cars in America last year. Yeah, this is this is. Like a terrifying thing, but is now become commonplace where um, cars are basically mobile computers these days anyway. If you're a mechanic trying to fix a car, you have to plug in a laptop a lot of the time to fix it. Um, but it, um, it's people who bought cars on uh, payments schemes. Like higher purchased all yeah. things or credit Yeah, they fall behind their payments. Uh, the dealers could remotely disable the car's functions until they got caught up on their payments so their cars wouldn't start. Um, and that's not like an exceptional thing. That's basically an exception of what is the trend in internet and tech for the last sort of 10, 15 years, where we increasingly, as you say, don't own things. We rent things from people. We, we like the reason Andro- um, Google gives away the Android operating system for phones for free isn't because they're being beneficial. It's because lots of people then use Android. Lots of people then use the Google services that come for free on the Android phones. You use Gmail, your personal data is in Gmail, and the cost of you using that for free is that they can extract value from the profiles of studying your emails, what other services you use, and then selling that to advertisers. I think that's something that people perhaps don't realise is the trade-off that they make when they get what they see as free services yeah. is often a loss of, of, of control, mm. really. Um, the yeah. other thing that I think people perhaps don't, we don't necessarily see as much of is, is an awareness of what happens if, if, if trolls get gain access to us. Because yeah. you're giving... I mean, actually, I guess you, you talked about a very scary example with Cory Doctorow, the science fiction writer, where a repressive government identifies people at a demonstration from facial recognition software, which already exists. Yeah. It's used by riot police um, and to tackle football hooliganism, and then um, decides to turn off the, all their smart thermostats in the dead of winter, and suddenly you've frozen yeah, all your... Yeah, you've killed off your protest movement. No Arab Spring or Ukrainian re- revolution or anything like that. But it definitely happens already on a, on a lower level. There was a, a Charlie Brooker's Weekly Wipe had an example um, last week of, of, the, of, a, of an internet-connected doll that you can kind of ask questions, kind of Siri style, and it's very easy to hack that doll so that you can make the doll swear. And <laughs> if there's anything, you know, you spend any time at all on the internet, you'll know that nothing would amuse the kind of hacker troll Absolutely community not. more yeah. than eight-year-olds being sworn at. This, this is also a point that is often made by um, David... Well, David Cameron was uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, tech companies need to... If they build secure software that's like, you know, terrorists want to use or whatever, there has to be a backdoor put in that uh, the government is able to access. The, the thing that people actually know about these things point out is that any backdoor in any secure software is a backdoor that anyone else can use. Mm. Um, so you don't make it secure anymore. And that will be exploited by people who just want to like vandalize stuff or steal things or they want to repress you as a government. Um, I heard an apocryphal, possibly apocryphal tale of people who changed their uh, Xbox Live gamer tags to things like Xbox Off. <laughs> Xbox, yeah, Xbox Turn Off. So. so which is the Connect voice command for turning your Xbox off. So you go, I can't believe you killed me, Xbox Off. And then your Xbox switches itself oh, off. There are some fantastic videos of people 
winning. Oh, yeah, I love those videos <laughs> on YouTube of people getting kicked out of Call of Duty for it. <laughs> <laughs> so from the very small and silly frustrations to potentially quite serious repressive stuff. But again, I do come back to my problem, which is that I don't think that... I think that... I don't know whether or not it's a failure by authorities or legislators, regulators or privacy campaigners can't get their message across. It's very hard to get people to... Yeah, to engage with this. it is. I, I think it is a combination of ignorance and laziness. Like uh, we like the fact that we have voice control and stuff now, but we don't appreciate that voice control requires a lot of internet servers talking to each other, and we don't control what goes anywhere. Um, but also, the regulatory framework for this is really non-existent. Like the UK government's, the EU uh, sort of EU-wide um, uh, commission is looking at this. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission in America is looking at this and they're starting to kind of think about what kind of steps might have to be implemented, whether we have to pass new laws or whether we just have to tighten up existing ones. Because at the moment you've got kind of the basic data protection legislation from the 90s, which is already kind of mm. falling apart a bit under new technology. So hopefully in the next couple of years we'll start seeing something a bit more concrete. Well, hopefully. I guess the big change is that I guess we need politicians who really understand this stuff yeah and, that's also incredibly important and that given that happen. they don't really understand video games a lot of the yeah. time and you know and the, it, the, the, the internet <laughs> sometimes I, even. I, I've, I've said this before but it's a weird thing where one of the few the few um situations where the house of laws actually knows more than the commons is when it comes to the internet because you have yeah. you have people who, who like martha, martha lane fox who made their career on the internet and whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they're other tech experts, they understand the legislation that is proposed in that area by the Commons far better than the MPs who often vote on it. Um, well, on that depressing yeah. note, I'll, uh, I'll end. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder. A brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.